Inspiration comes in many forms. I mentioned in the previous video post that I can get inspiration from the slightest little thing. I see an image, read an article, or hear a podcast that fires up the old grey sails, and away I go. On this occasion, it was just a simple question asked on our Facebook group. The answers received setting me off on my latest journey. I want to produce an occasional series of posts, all with a common link, a combination of videos, podcasts and written articles that will chronicle the journey that I've chosen to take. It's my intention, you see, to take the Ghosts of the Broads book out on tour. After scanning the contents list, I recognise several places that I want to study further. Some of them have a personal attachment for me, whilst others have a strange story that needs further investigation. I got to thinking about what exactly is the best way to go about this task, and I've come up with the following format. The book is full of stories. They're very much of their time, the book itself having been published in 1931. It also happens to be the only ghost book, as far as I know, that Chaz, or Charles, Samson has written. He is no M.R. James by any stretch of the imagination, but the stories resonate with so many people, both locals and visitors to the Norfolk Broads, I felt it was worth my time to tell them again and to follow up with some investigations of my own. The first name that stood out on the list was St Bennet's Abbey. It happens to be the first place we investigated as a team way back in 2009. We've been back a couple of times since then. Our last visit there will feature as part of a new series of video episodes entitled Tales of Haunted Norfolk, which we are adding to our Prime video feed. So, without further ado, it's time to open the book to page 181 and tell you the tale of St. Bennet's Abbey. St. Bennet's Abbey by Chaz Sampson. If I had only known then what I do now, wild horses would not have dragged me to this sacred spot on the evening of the 25th of May. And yet, in our blissful ignorance, we moored alongside the bank by the ruin and imagined we had really struck an ideal spot. Had it been any other night but this one, I learned, when it was too late. It would have actually surpassed our expectations, for it is really lovely there on any night, except the one that we hit on. For centuries and centuries, the slowly flowing Bure has glided past and laved the banks of this meadowland, which has more tragic history in its past than many better known places in the kingdom. In 690 AD, a Christian hermitage was there, and when King Canute arrived in 1016 AD, a monastery of the Black Friars or Benedicts had long been established there and was flourishing. In those days, land and property had to be safeguarded against attacks by invaders and marauders, and so it came about St. Benedict's Abbey at Holm, as it was always called, was not only a religious house, but a fortress as well and all the inmates were trained like soldiers in the prowess of arms. It can be easily appreciated how, on the arrival of an enemy, the monks would be called upon to defend their property and promptly, laying down their breveries, pick up their swords, slings and crossbows. 
And so it happened when in 1016 AD the Danish king Canute arrived on the horizon. All grazing cattle were herded inside the fortified walls of the abbey. The big gates were well bolted and barred, and every man jack who could wield a weapon was called upon to do so. But the Danish king was not so easily to be withstood as the abbot had imagined, and after laying siege to it for over two months, he put it to the torch and sent it up in flames. As soon as this had been accomplished, it must be said to his credit, he rebuilt it on an even more elaborate scale than ever, and the place was restarted under the same regime as before. The monks returned and the abbot was pardoned for his resistance. The religious at St. Bennet's carried on their work and the abbey became the great seat of learning for East Anglia and by 1020 AD the senior house in the British province of the Order. The remains of the abbey that we see today with the brick tower of a mill erected in its midst is all that is left of Canute's handiwork. King Canute is interred in the sanctuary of Winchester Cathedral. For many years unbroken peace reigned in the abbey and then the conqueror came. St Benedict's withstood William of Normandy and with the help of the surrounding peasantry put up a more stubborn resistance which had lasted for nearly four months. The Duke's attacking forces were almost inclined to give it up and raise the siege, so impregnable did the monastery appear. But at last, by a ruse, they captured it. So well did the monks fight that it was only by a gross piece of treachery that the abbey fell. A soldier was sent across with a white flag and was admitted. Surreptitiously he slipped the janitor monk a note asking his presence before the besieging general who guaranteed him perfect safety. When it came to a reply being sent back from the abbey he volunteered to take it and the permission being granted he duly appeared alone before the general with his missive in which surrender conditional or otherwise was refused. The general then took the reverend brother aside and had a chat with him and whilst the arms of the abbey were fluttering defiantly in the breeze above the monastery walls one of its inmates was treacherously selling his own brethren for a hundred shekels of silver. What are you? inquired the general. I am a lay brother, replied Brother Veritas, for that was his name. Not even a priest, eh? smiled the general. Alas, no, sir. Have to work pretty hard, eh? Very hard, sir. How would you like to be a priest, then? Oh, sir, I am not worthy enough. Your humility fits you for even higher rank than priest. I have the disposal of the monastery in my hands, and can do what I like with it. But you can quite appreciate the fact that although an abbot may have complete government and control within his monastery, yet he in turn has to be subject to the ruler of the kingdom wherein his monastery is. Yes, meekly replied, Brother Veritas. Now then, my friend, went on the general, adopting a very definite military attitude, if this abbot of yours holds out over tomorrow, then I shall issue orders that everyone within the monastery shall be put to the sword. If they open the gates tonight as an act of submission, then they shall be spared, yourself included. The brother stiffened and went very pale. 
then blurted out, Oh dear, oh dear, that will never do. Supposing I open the gates myself, I am the janitor. Are you afraid of what the abbot might do to you afterwards? Yes, replied Veritas, his voice trembling the same as his body at the thought of it. You see, I should be immured or something terrible like that for life. Ah, yes, I see, replied the general. Now we can easily overcome all that. We can take them all prisoners, dispose the abbot, anoint and ordain you a priest, and give you the abbacy on the spot. Then you will be perfectly safe. No one could touch you if you were the abbot. You will not only be doing yourself a good turn, but you will save in the lives of everybody in the monastery. I'll do it, exclaimed the lay brother. Splendid, barked the general, tonight at sundown. Tonight at sundown, and you will keep your promise, added the weakling. My promise. Take my sword and offer me the cross to kiss, and handing his sword to Veritas, he kissed the hilt. The brother was so impressed that he raced back to the monastery and told the abbot that the general would put everyone to the sword if the monastery was not handed over by the following day. Never! shouted the abbot in a terrific burst of rage. These thieving maniacs from hell give up our monastery to them? Never! And he went purple in the face. The house of God to be given over to a horde of cutthroat barbarians? Not whilst I have a breath in my body. Then he summoned the prior, the reverend precentor, Father Sancristan, and the assistant rector, and they all went into silent conclave in the chapel. They commended their souls to God and decided unanimously to sit tight. They were perfectly safe, and no one could venture within the fortress if they were strong enough to hold out as long as they had. They could still hold out, and would. There were sufficient supplies within the monasteries to last them for twelve months if need be, and they could afford to wait. A strict guard was kept at all points, and at night the sentries in the battlements were doubled. The night following the promise of the general was very dark. Everywhere around was still, and although the air was soft and balmy, there was something sinister in it that made one draw closer inside their cloak and give a little shiver. It was the 25th of May, and spring had burgeoned in a wealth of flowers and lovely weather, and Brother Veritas was thanking his creator for all the beautiful things in life, and his ability to enjoy them, and was standing by the large heavy gate of the monastery peeping out through the grill into the tranquil night beyond when a touch on his shoulder brought him back too with a terrific start. Another brother had brought him a stoop of wine to cheer him up on his watch, and then went on his way singing in the blithe and happy voice one of the psalms from the vespers of that evening. Veritas followed him with eyes and exclaimed, Ah, if he but knew. To him there was no qualm of conscience in what he had promised to do, for was he not going to save the entire monastery, and then, being made abbot, he would be in a more better position to do much more for his brethren than might ever come his way again. His hand itched for the bolts, and the time appointed for the signal when he would undo the great door seemed never to come. He preened himself at the thought of his promotion and the exalted rank he would hold in the church, and there were one or two things he would have to say to the then abbot once he was deposed. His breast heaved with emotion at all of these thoughts, and he could almost feel himself now a mitred abbot, 
and experience a sense of great authority. The big bell in the tower told the hour of eleven and its call resonated away over the marshes for miles, so deep, so full was it. The besieging troops heard it and gazed out into the darkness of the night from whence it came. Veritas's fingers were simply tingling with excitement, awaiting the quarter after the hour when he could expect the signal from the enemy without. Dripping of the water clock was the only sound that broke the quiet and stillness near the gate. From his little room in the gatehouse, he looked out upon the empty courtyard. At last, yes, at last, the moment was at hand when from his menial and servile position, he would be suddenly translated to the highest position of authority in the monastery. Three gentle taps repeated twice were audible on the great door, and Veritas stepped out to the portal. Three more taps from without, and his fingers nearly stiffened with anxiety. Then, taking his courage in his hands, he slid back the bolt gently and noiselessly, and lifting down the huge bar, the doors swung back on the hinges, and a body of men rushed headlong into the sacred fortress. Brother Veritas was the first person to be seized and dragged away to the camp. Once the invading troops were inside, the palace was theirs, for the resistance put up by the monks was as nothing. Their main defence was gone, when the walls no longer kept the enemy without, and except for the few odd struggles, the affair was over. The soldiery and the monks fraternised in good spirits and arms were laid aside, but the following morning a great ceremony took place. The soldiers now held the keys of the friary, and into the great chapel filed the military, whilst the monks filled the gallery. The general came in with a band of officers and stood in the choir. Then Brother Veritas was called, and to the intense surprise of all of his brethren, he was brought before the altar where he was anointed by a sergeant. A cope was placed around his shoulders, then the abbot's mitre was placed on his head and a crozier in his hand. In a loud voice the general then appointed him abbot of St Benedict's at home for life. The real abbot nearly fell back and collapsed in the gallery. Then, to everyone's surprise, the new mitred abbot was bound with his hands behind him and dragged away by the soldiers to a gibbet. He shouted for mercy, but William's men had their own way of attending to these matters. Once outside, they placed a noose around his neck and hoisted him up in his full regalia to a pole projecting from the lowest window in the bell tower, where everybody could see him. They had kept their promise and then paid him in full for his treachery. The general was so sympathetic towards the abbot that the taking of the monastery was not allowed to inconvenience the monks at all. The hauling up of the lay brother by the neck was a terrible punishment, and to see a richly vested being in cope and mitre kicking frantically in mid-air was, and still is, a sickening sight. I say still, because every year on the night of the 25th of May, the same tragedy is enacted. The mate and I were spreading ourselves on the deck on the evening in question two years ago, when suddenly the abbey rematerialized itself out of its ruins. The mill tower which some clever person built within its sacred precincts in the 1800s, which is familiar to all who know the place at all, vanished. And a magnificent stone church with a stone tower stood out against the midnight sky. 
In a few moments, the entire monastery had taken shape again out of nothingness, and the whole place was suffused with a brilliant patch of local daylight. We were almost transported at the sight, and out pipes went through sheer inattention, so absorbed were we by what we saw. Then, there was a terrific shimozzle. The gates were flung open, and a crowd of clamouring people poured out into the open. There were soldiers in armour, monks in their black habits, swarming and crowding with excitement. Then out of the chapel came a throng of soldiers, and in their midst what appeared to be an abbot, in a cope and mitre, with his hands tied behind him. A rope was slipped over his head, and in a trice he had been hauled, kicking, struggling and gurgling in mid-air. No more nauseating scene can be imagined than this, and I have since made inquiries in many directions, but as in relation to all other ghostly apparitions, you can get nothing out of the natives. Nevertheless, it is fairly well known by visitors, and I have had the opportunities of comparing notes with several. A party on the Puffin 1 in 1906 saw it, and as the owner was a near neighbour of mine, we have had good opportunities of discussing the vision. He also knows at least three different parties who have unwittingly found themselves present and witnessed this awful scene. I advise all those who find themselves in that area on the 25th of May ever to move on to some other place where the birth alongside will not be spoiled by such a ghastly exposition as fell to our lot in the year of grace 1928. As I'd previously said, it's very much of its time. A ghost story written in 1931. It now sounds very antiquated to our ears. But the story persists. It's still said that on the 25th of May, if you're visiting St. Bennett's Abbey, you will be treated to this vision. But over the years, the story's changed somewhat. It's now known as the Screaming Monk or the Shrieking Monk, and it's meant to be an apparition that comes out of the darkness and screaming and frightening the living daylights out of you. In fact, there's a local story about a wherryman who'd moored up for the night and was making his way down to the Checkers pub, which is a little further along the riverbank. He came past the gatehouse tower with the windmill in it and was treated to the sight, the Screaming Monk coming towards him frightened the living daylights out of this wherryman and he ran back towards his boat, lost his way in the dark, fell in the river and drowned. So, next time we're going to take a visit to St Bennett's Abbey and I'm going to show you around so you can have a good look at what's left of the place and then we'll have a look at Mr Sampson's story because, well, let's just say there are a few inventions in there. And I think we can get to the truth of the matter. And I will tell you a better story of St. Bennet's Abbey. So, until next time, good night. Mm -hmm.